Hey, no name calling here. Just differing opinions going head to head. With Counterpoint. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Let's get to it. With Counterpoint, we got Bob Richardson, Senior Counsel over at National Public Affairs Relations. I mean, hello there. Good evening. You're always so chipper, Bob. Where do you get the energy? <laughs> so just dragging here. And Anthony Fury, who you can read, of course, in the Sun Post Media, where he writes, hello. If you guys play your cards right, I might sing Baby, It's Cold Outside at the end. (laughs) All right. I will actually challenge you to that. Let's talk a little (laughs) bit about uh, the issue I was just chatting with uh, Dave Perry on the CTV News report, uh, where roughly a quarter of convicted murderers are serving time in minimum security prisons. As soon as two years into a maximum uh, you know, s- s- sentence in a maximum security facility, inmates can, in fact, start applying to get more privileges. And a large number of, of inmates are, in fact, getting into these minimum security facilities, one in four serving time in minimum security facilities. Here is Ralph Goodale um, talking about, you know, rehabilitation corrections. Most important amongst all of them is public safety. That is the that is the leading consideration in terms of how to how to uh, deal with offenders, uh, how to make sure that uh, uh, at the end of uh, their term, if they are to be eventually uh, released, uh, that they are are. Uh, uh, prepared to re-enter society in a way that will keep society safe and not result in them immediately reoffending. So, you know, it wasn't till really we heard about Terry Lynn McClintock, which kind of kicked the doors open on this issue, that we started to realize that we are definitely, I think, in this country turning to more of a rehabilitation uh, correction system than actual justice. And I think this is an irritating issue for Canadians, especially when we're talking about some of the names like Michael Rafferty and and people that are kind of within five years of a sentence are starting to go into lesser grade facilities or start with you on this. Anthony, does this become an election issue? You know what, Alex? I'm a pretty low-maintenance guy, and my hobbies include reading, writing, and working out, and running (laughs) on the treadmill. Those are the things I like to do. And before I had a family, when I was in my 20s, I used to think, you know, I I guess if I went to jail, it wouldn't be that bad, because I just get to concentrate on the things I like to do, because all the stuff I like to (laughs) do, you you can actually (laughs) do in jail. And now when I look at some of these stories and the the, the low security, sometimes you're looking at this and there's probably people walking around going, well, why shouldn't I kill a person? Yeah, no one's bitching at you. You don't have to do your housework. You can cook dinner. I know. If if you like having food served to you that isn't that high quality, because I know it's not the the, the, Michelin star there, you're doing fine. And when you mention Rafferty, McClintock, uh, Wet Laffer, and different category, but Omar Khadr always coming back for more of that multimillionaire, you start to feel like, like literally the inmates are running the asylum. Because we we did not uh, consent to this. We are moving towards rehabilitation. You're right, Alex, but it's happened uh, without our permission. We're the people who pay for it. And the justice system is original. I think it was my colleague Lauren Gunter who was writing this recently. The, the original reason historically justice system came about was because they said, we don't want mob rule. We don't want you going and killing your neighbor for retaliation. So the society will create this justice system and you have to promise to not do mob rule. And that's kind of the deal. If we lose trust in the justice system, bad scene. Yeah, I gotta be honest, Bob, I'm not against people getting a second chance, but when it comes to child killers and those who have committed some of the most heinous crimes of killing someone else, I I just don't think two years is quite the bar we want to set. Well, I tend to agree with you, and my spidey sense tells me that public safety is not the number one thing. It seems to be more of a bureaucratic process. 
that's number one that sort of just seems to careen forward without uh, uh, enough oversight. I mean, I, I don't think anybody is in favor uh, or, or not in favor of somebody having a second chance. I certainly am. But the other thing is, can we have clear rules on this that the public knows about yeah, right. and that are clearly posted mm-hmm. and that we know and that there's process and that we follow the process? I think that would go a long way to cleaning up a lot of the problem here if people knew what, uh, knew what the process was and had a better sense. And, you know, maybe there are some, uh, some, some uh, inmates uh, based on, on – on what they have done, who should be in in more minimum uh, security uh, um, s- settings. I don't know, but all I know is that everything always seems to be a surprise in the justice system or in the correction system, and it annoys Canadians. And you don't know what's going on, and it's not what we expect to have happen. So this needs to be cleaned up. Yeah, I agree. And look, it's it didn't just start with this government. It's been going on for a while. But the bottom no, line is, we've discovered it now, and and they have to. I think, you know, they have to make. A change because we've now learned that some of the worst killers, Wet Lawfer, you've got Terry McClintock, yeah. Michael, all these names coming up that are already into the rehabilitation stage and they have no business, no business being fixed because they can't be. Some people, Bob, just can't be fixed. Yeah, I, I look, I agree with that, too, as well. But and what's the process there? Yeah. But, you know, nobody seems to know and everything's always a surprise. So let's let's get our you know what together. Yeah. And meanwhile, just kind of, you know, I was writing through this article today because this is an issue that I I care about. You know, we learned that the Supreme Court of Canada has struck down a law that would force people uh, convicted of crimes to pay a surcharge to help the victims. And they ruled in a majority. But they say that mandatory fees, you know, amounts to cruel and unusual punishment. This has been in place since the 80s for background. And. Stephen Harper changed it because it used to be that judges could use their discretion of who they would, you know, charge this fee, which is 30 percent of a fine you would pay. It would go to the victims. But Harper made it mandatory for all. And uh, I'll start with you on this, Anthony. Bottom line is there's not much in it for 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 victims of crime. And it's another story where it seems like the the criminals are the people who are the priority here. I think it's a bit of overkill. To, if people want to say they don't support this, that's one thing. But it's total overkill for the Supreme Court to say it's cruel and unusual punishment. Where they're getting this from is the idea that there'll be a $100 surcharge on, on a homeless person. Mm-hmm. And then this guy's going, I can't possibly pay this, and he doesn't even bother. And then he can even be brought back into the justice system to answer the fact he hasn't paid it. And that's obviously going to cost us, like, thousands of dollars worth of man hours to do that. And I don't like that 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 factor at all. So I, I, I get a large part of the Supreme Court reasoning. At the same time, is there a middle ground here? Trudeau has actually been on record saying since he became leader in about 2013 that he wants to do away with this because that was the year it came in. We think, can we be a bit more constructive and perhaps have a middle ground where it's no longer discretionary to give it to a person, but there can be later enforcement mechanisms that are discretionary. So we're not actually chasing uh, the hobos for a hundred bucks, but all the other people who face two hundred dollar fines and are you, you know have jobs and so forth. We can go after them, or you know, change it so that Bob, there's a system in place where the restitution maybe it's not money, but maybe you know you get uh, like a you know a, I'm not saying a cha- I don't want to be compared to a chain gang, but you know you go and help a victim's family or do something in the community uh, to help out or do something to pay back anything yeah and i i i have no problem with uh, with that principle at all i do want to say something though this is yet another example of the most boneheaded inept government when it came to judicial rulings 
and the law that we've seen in the last 30 or 40 years, and that is the Harper government. They have lost time and time and time again in the courts. They got their you-know-what handed to them by conservative justices, including a chief justice from Pincher Creek, Alberta, time and again. I think you would be hard-pressed to think of any government that has less to show for the amount of work that they put in on judicial reform because they didn't do their homework and they were inept at it. And this is yet another example of it. Well, you know, but I would say that most Canadians probably agree and support the mandate that that had. But again, the judges, it couldn't get by the judges. And so, in effect, it got booted out. And but now, everything, yeah. again, everything's always a surprise with these guys. They got they they got whooped every time in court, and it was a mess, and they, they didn't seem to do their homework. And this is what happened. And, and these sort of mandate, this is a, another example of them blowing it. So we take what was a reasonable law, and now it's tossed out, and we got to go back to... Uh, you know, uh, to stage one to get uh, something back in place that makes sense. Hey, no name-calling here. Just differing opinions going head-to-head. With Counterpoint. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. We got Bob Richardson and Anthony Fury weighing off in Counterpoint. Uh, This came um, late tonight, and and it kind of came out of nowhere, but the... uh, the PCs will be recalling the legislature on Monday because they have to have an emergency um, session to, I guess, make sure that this whole OPG issue is settled. And that's because the union has issued a strike warning um, that could come into effect fully in 21 days. But the concern is within seven days, so on Christmas Eve, we could start to see rolling brownouts. So the province is hoping to work the the stoppage of this and literally keep the lights on. The timing's impeccable, Bob. Well, this government is exhausting me. They they can't seem to get anything done on a normal schedule. Everything has to be an emergency. It's great for talk radio. Come on. It's fantastic. The entire province needs to go to a spa for a week. You know, like it's too much. So it's a constant state of crisis. Now, in this case, obviously, it's an issue of public safety, and you've got to ensure that uh, things are done in place. But I, I kind of do ask myself, they were just sitting for the last two months. Did nobody realize that this was coming down the pipe? Well, I, that's the thing. When did the, the and, union... And, and, you yeah. couldn't, and you couldn't pass this bill during the regular sitting of the legislature? It it's, seems to be an exhausting circus that... Uh, and boy, I'm sure members are not very happy that they're being dragged back, uh, you know, the week before Christmas. But it is what it is. I'm sure Ms. Horvath will be thrilled. Yeah, but the nonetheless, I mean, look, why isn't this an essential service? Well, well, that's that's the question, Alex. The reason I'm a Canadian, not British, is because my dad, when he was in his 20s, came over here to work in small-town Ontario at the Bruce Nuclear Power Plant, which was a part of Ontario Hydro and was a public utility at the time. Ontario Power Generation, the Darlington Pickering plants, they would have been the same. They were all public. And during the privatization process, did, did nobody actually think about preventing something like this from happening? So I think this is a flaw in the model of, of, of how uh, we sort of, you know, changed the system and so forth, because this should not be allowed to... I mean, heavens, power brownouts, in like a winter? major... A stability for an electronic civilization in the winter, as you put it, because they they have some problems with converting temporary to full-time workers. I, I understand if we were doing, like, slave labor and they work in the coal mines 14 hours a day, but give me a break. They should not be allowed to strike over this. This is not 
I mean, we sense. made the TTC an essential service, right. did we not? This yeah. makes perfect sense. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's talk about the other story that is supposed to, well, it's, it's not going to end, but nonetheless, on Monday, at the same time, uh, Ron Tavner is supposed to be sworn in to the top position uh, of the OPP. Um, but, you know, this headline just kind of keeps growing by the day. I know that there's a lot of, of politics being played at every level here, Anthony, but the bottom absolutely. line is, um, you know, this thing's not going to go away for him. It's not going to go away, but everybody's made their bed and everybody's trying to lie in it and everybody's trying to dig their heels in it. Make no mistake, this is a power play from a whole lot of people. I think it, what, whatever your position on, on whether or not Tavener should be the OPP commissioner, I think it is embarrassing that the interim OPP commissioner is, is, is injecting himself in such a politicized way here. It is not his place to file these complaints that he's doing it with agencies. I don't even know if they're the appropriate ones for him to file the complaints with it. It is just a mess. And there is a very, very narrow um, uh, credential qualification for this post, which I find a little bizarre. It means only people in a certain feeder system uh, who are perhaps allied to previous appointments and other sort of previous politicians and so forth are eligible for the job. And you got to change it. I mean, this guy was a cop for 50 years in a bunch of different precincts, hands of pre- a handful of precincts. Of course the guy is, is eligible for this position. I mean, I think it's nuts, and I think we're going to have to change things after the fact here to, to learn from this. But at the same time, for Doug Ford, it's about optics, whether he's right or wrong. It's about optics, and he, he can't make these kinds of missteps. Even if he hasn't, he's got to be more careful. Bob? I think this was a massive political overreach. Uh, two, there were lots of qualified candidates. I believe 23 applied under the first uh, under the first a series of criteria, and then the second series of criteria came out, and there were another three or four added. So, I, you know, there was a, a legitimate pool of candidates uh, out there, and I think somebody who's been like chief of police in Ottawa or Kingston or Hamilton is is, is an el- eligible candidate. So it's not just OPP insiders. Um, so, but this was a massive political overreach poorly executed political overreach and they're wearing it and uh you know they're all headed to the hills on it i feel a bit badly for uh, ron tavner uh, my understanding is he's a lot been a very good yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, policeman over the years uh and from uh, folks i know in the city of toronto uh, said he did a good job in, in, in etobicoke and i think it's going to be very difficult for him to do his job over the next period of time now too as well so this is not uh, been handled well, and this is not a model on uh, on how appointments should be made. Maybe he'll prove everyone wrong. We will see, because he is a good cop. And, and and Fantino himself said rank should not matter. He is qualified to do this job. But again, in, in Fantino's day, we saw the same kind of politics where the province, you know, with Caledonia and that kind of stuff. So it be interesting to watch. I do want both of your opinions on what's going on with China. There were, I said that like Trump, didn't I? China. How do you say it? China? You did. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to. Canadian officials, of course, going to Washington today. Some very high-level talks on this particular issue. Christian Freeland, who has not had uh, a day off and has certainly earned her paycheck for this year. Um, you know, she, t- she took a shot, not really directly at Trump, but she, she was saying, look, the politics are not, it's not welcome. Um, but none, nonetheless, they went to Washington to make sure that, that the U.S. was on side and, and had their back. Anthony? Well, the whole thing is politics right now. And, and and as I was saying last week, this is about challenging China's attempted supremacy of, of, of the world, of trade issues, of various infrastructure issues and so forth. I still don't know whether this is the appropriate uh, action to do it on. And I don't think we'll figure that out for six months or a year or two years from now. I think what this underscores for Canada right now, 
we can't do this 5G deal. They must be banned. Ralph Goodell, again, today was being a little cagey and saying, oh, I don't know, it's it's still in the process and so forth. But we, there's such bad blood that we just can't trust them to have their tentacles into the system right now. So that's got to be done with. And we've got to review some some whole other uh, issues here in, in terms of uh, in, in, in terms of these relationships with China. I mean, we're, we're going to have to look at the trade deals very differently here, and we are going to have to go sectoral as we advance, so individual sectors as opposed to some all-encompassing trade deal. And, and maybe that's okay. I mean, we're going to be revisiting the Canada-China relationship, but I think the Prime Minister was always a bit naive about how rosy it could be in the first place. So maybe the fact that the relationship is cooling a bit isn't that bad of a thing? I don't know about that. I mean, Chris Alexander was on the show and he said, you know, the one big negotiating power that we have, Bob, is that we have Huawei. I mean, they can use that as a negotiating tactic. But the the, the problem is we shouldn't be using Huawei at all because well, then we alienate ourselves with, with our wait, actual wait, hold allies. On. Was he saying that we have her? He's saying that we no, have... No, no, we have the, the company. I mean, we can use that as a negotiation because they want placement within Canada. You know, the bottom line is we can't keep it in Canada because it go, it violates our relationship with our allies. I think that's a terrible, yeah. terrible advice from Chris Alexander. Yeah. That's dreadful. I got about 37 seconds for you, Bob. Sorry, I'm running up against the yeah, clock. And, well, I'll tell you what. one thing that this all means. This business of going after a UN Security Council seat, we've had a very bad year if you're looking to rack up votes. We have uh, problems with India. We have yep. problems with China. Mm-hmm. We've had uh, problems in the, in the Middle East. Australia. Um, this has not been a Australia. Uh, this has not been a banner year for lining up uh, votes if you're looking to win a, a seat at the, uh, at the UN, and this is just yet another example of that. Oh. Stay tuned. All right, guys, I can't thank you enough for sharing your Friday. I really appreciate it. We'll do it again. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Bob Richardson, Anthony Fury joining us here tonight. You're listening to On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio.